Okay, uh, Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Show, it's not even a show yet. Uh, for all of those who don't know you, uh, congratulations, you're missing out big time. Uh, everybody should know you. But for the few folks who might be new to the game and have no idea who Cindy Crum is, please tell us who Cindy Crum is. Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Cindy, and I'm the CEO of Mobile Moxie. Uh, we do ASO and SEO and have awesome tools. And we've been around doing really technical SEO kinds of projects for over 10 years. And you're also a kick-ass speeder and writer, I mean speaker. Um, and you're the proud owner of Barkley. Who's Barkley and how is he doing? He's good. He's, uh, we're getting ready for winter. All the leaves, he brings in so many leaves because he's like Velcro. Everything just sticks to him. <laughs> to be fair, Barkley is a dog and not a human. But uh, I think until this point, <laughs> it could have been either way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, awesome. Most productive member of Mobile Moxie. Um, one thing that while we're talking about Mobile Moxie, um, when did you start and um, how did it develop? Like, what was the reason for starting Mobile Moxie and where are you at right now? Sure. So I started um, over 10 years ago, I think 20, 2008. Um, and it was after working at an agency for a number of years. I had been speaking on behalf of the agency and I just wanted to focus on mobile a lot more. Um, and so I left, uh, I also wanted to write a book, so I left and I wrote my book and I started my, uh, little consultancy and it's, it's been a wild ride. The consultancy, it stayed really small for many years. It was just me. Uh, but now we have, uh, three full-time consultants and a bunch of part-time developers, uh, and it's fully remote company. Uh, most of the, well, the consultants are all in Denver. Uh, but developers are all over the world. Uh, so yeah, it's fun. I get to travel. It's what I wanted. <laughs> uh, it sounds like fun. What was the book, uh, real quick, uh, just for the show notes? Uh, mobile Moxie, finding, or not Mobile Moxie, Mobile Marketing, Finding Your Customers No Matter Where They Are. Nice. What was the experience writing the book? I hated it. <laughs> Why? It was horrible. I don't recommend it. If you, if you value <laughs> your mental health, it's something you should avoid. <laughs> What was the most draining part about it? Uh, well, halfway through the book, the publishing company that asked me to write the book decided that they wanted to totally reformat the book and, and put it under another series. So I was writing for this one series that was a bunch of short chapters for introductory level. And I had written a bunch of short chapters for introductory level. And they were like, oh, never mind. We, what we want is long, deep chapters. Uh, so I basically had to start over and they said, you could just cram everything together. But that's really not how it works because there were intros and outros and uh, stuff like that. So I basically um, had to start over and they didn't pay me anything extra. In fact, I wished I had stayed with the original series, uh, but I didn't realize back then that I probably could have objected or that I had a choice. I just did what I was told. So, no, oh, well, I probably would have done the same. Uh, it's probably a tough <laughs> call, especially when you do this for the first time. But um, whichever contemplate to write another book, maybe in a different way, maybe not with a publisher even? Yes, I, I would consider self-publishing uh, and I would consider maybe writing another book with another company. Um, 
Yeah, but it was just like, uh, there's a TED Talk with the author of Eat, Pray, Love, and she talks about how sometimes you have to tweeze every single line out of your veins, uh, and sometimes it felt like that. I will certainly include a link to that in the show notes. So if any publishers out there are listening, just send Cindy a fat <laughs> check and maybe we can talk <laughs> about a book. Because I think it really shows, I love your writing. Uh, I've read uh, many of the long series uh, of articles on Mobile Moxie about entities and uh, your um, ambitions and fraggles. And it's such a level up in SEO and, and understanding. So that was hugely helpful. Um, and so, yeah, just want to congratulate you on that. And thank you very much because it was amazingly insightful. Uh, before we jump into that, actually quickly want to point it out that uh, in doing a bit of research for this uh, episode, I looked at mobilemox.com and saw that you put a bigger emphasis on your tools. So can you talk us a bit about what you got going there and how you, I would also be very curious about how you develop these tools, like what your... Um, goal is and maybe what you're thinking behind these tools is yeah so actually mobile moxie has had tools for many years um and i decided for my 2019 uh goal was to really do a better job of focusing on the tools uh, because i think they're really cool and they're really useful but they've always kind of sat in the background for consulting like consulting has been uh the main focus but I wanted to really make sure that the tools got a fair shot and that I wasn't just sticking with what I was comfortable with. So I switched and, and made the whole emphasis of the site uh, driving signups for the tools. And the tools are actually really, really cool. And there's not anything else out there that I know of that, that does what they do. Uh, because we created them because I had a need for them with consulting clients because uh, you know, SEO results change from desktop to phone, and especially on the phone, they're more location-specific and aware, and they change uh, and show different things related to your location. And I had clients all over the world, and I wanted to be able to test and see what people in, in the locations of my clients or in the locations of my clients' clients were seeing when they were doing searches. So we made a tool that lets you... Um, locate yourself anywhere in the world, choose from a bunch of phones, you can even choose two phones at a time if you want, and just put in a query and see what the live Google result looks like right now. Um, and it's even uh, as accurate as um, if, if you're testing in the US somewhere in Europe and it's the middle of the night, all the map pack results will be there, but they'll all say closed because it's the middle of the night. So it's, it's a real-time live testing for what a SERP looks like from anywhere. Uh, and so it's caught on with the local SEOs, but anymore, I think so many searches are mobile and uh, customers are mobile that everything is kind of, to some degree, a local SEO play. Because if you think you're, you're Best Buy and you're working for Best Buy, well, Best Buy has lots of offline locations. That's really what they're, they're going for. Or, you know, they're probably going for online sales, too. But uh, if they have any offline locations or if you're doing anything where you think people might be searching from a mobile phone, which according to Google is more than half the searches, then you should know what, uh, what your, your SERP looks like. And also, the point that I've been making most recently is a lot of the things that are happening in the search result aren't being reported to us anymore. Things like um, whether or not you have a featured snippet 
whether or not there's these interesting finds or found on the web or all of these things that could be pushing a ranking way down uh, and causing traffic for a ranking to go down, even though the, the numeric ranking that they show you in Search Console stays the same. I think it's sneaky. Don't you think it is? It I think Google's is. trying to get away with something. Yeah. And I feel like there's more and more of that kind of stuff happening, right? Where, um, yeah, you just find yourself in a position where there's so many different factors that impact your rankings and the traffic that comes to you. And I feel like it's not always um, reported in the right way by Google. They do give us more data over time, but they also, they develop the SERPs or change the SERPs at such a faster pace that it's almost impossible to keep up with. But I love the tools and I think it's such a big, important need that you fill there because it is so hard to see or to get a feeling for what the SERP looks like even at the other side of the coast. Um, at G2, we're uh, a bit more, um, uh, we have offices uh, on, on both sides of the U.S. coast. Uh, and sometimes we get, um, I get increased from uh, salespeople or, or other colleagues who ask me, hey, why are we ranking, I don't know, on position seven here? And I look it up and we're actually in position six. So the SERP looks different. And it's getting to a level that is so difficult to grasp uh, and even for international research so one thing that i'm doing as well is i look at um, global markets or local markets uh, overseas and see how we could expand there and if you want to get a feeling for local competitors and what the search results there look like it is tough sometimes there are tools but i feel like that that the ones that you provide are super helpful for that need and then there's also the app store rank checker um which is another super handy tool um, and one thing that i wrote about in TechBound recently was the App Store scandal uh, for the New York Times, uh, where they accidentally, I assume, uh, ranked, I think, tons of their apps. I think the, I think the outcome was that there were over six or 700 um, keywords where Apple ranked number one with their own tools. Uh, have, you, have you noticed that? And what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, of course they do. And, and Google ranks number one for their, their things as well, very often, but not as much. But something that you might find interesting is now um, Apple is so conscious or self-conscious of that that they've stopped even having star rankings or download volume in the app pack. So, for instance, if you search for podcast app, um, you might get an Apple podcast app or uh, the Apple Podcast Player, and it has zero and zero. When all of the other apps have their star ratings overall and how many downloads they have, the Apple products have just stopped reporting on it, so you can't prove that algorithmically they shouldn't be there. You know, because what if they, in reality they have 2.5 out of 4 or out of 5, then now you just won't know. Uh, so there's no way to really give it a fair comparison. Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah, I feel like all of these companies, like they pull such sneaky moves. Like what is up with them? Uh, yeah, I feel like the, the Department of Justice in the US might have a, a saying or a word or two about that. Uh, and I feel like tech companies get a bit more pushback, uh, especially in Europe as well. Um, so yeah, let's see how that ends, but, uh, it is certainly sneaky and it's tough to, to, to compete in those kind of, in those waters. Um, and so, um, one thing that I was curious about is when to maybe step back for a second and when you started mobile moxie, you said you wanted to get into mobile marketing and fo focus on mobile just a bit more overall. What was your thinking back in the time? If you recall, what, what was the, what triggered you to say, 
this is an opportunity I want to jump on. Well, it just, it seemed important and no one was talking about it. And I had just gotten my first smartphone and I was doing all these searches and seeing that the wrong sites were ranking or sites were ranking with really bad experience. And I knew enough about SEO to look into it and figure out what those sites were doing wrong and how they could make it a better user experience or how the right sites could do a better job of driving rankings in mobile. Um, so I just started you know, looking to see that the, the results were in fact different and that no one was talking to these people about what they needed to do to rank well in mobile. So I just started writing about it and researching it. Um, because no one was talking about it. And at the time, you know, that was, I mean, cause I first started mobile SEO before I started my company. So around about 2005, right when everyone still had Blackberries and, uh, before the first iPhone had come out. So, so web experiences were sometimes on mobile still text only or very limited images. Um, and so there was a lot that you could do to make your website better for mobile back then uh, because it was a vastly different experience. And now we have responsive design, so it's very similar. But even back then, I was talking about using style sheets to control the, the size and the rendering of things before it was called responsive design. You know, it didn't even have a name back then. Uh, and, and back then, people were still talking about .mobi. And, you know, do you need a .mobi? And so I got up and explained, like, for SEO, that's a really bad play because it's splitting all the SEO value. Uh, and no one's going to link to your .mobi. So it was, it was the Wild West. It was so new. And even Google. I mean, Google has taken vast shifts on what they recommend for mobile over the years. Uh, and so Google didn't know what to tell people. And, and I mean, it's, it was so long ago. Like, they were transcribing certain web pages. Uh, they had a, a system that would just scrape all the text and show you only the text and a couple images. Um, and you could, there were settings that you could put in your HTTP headers to turn that off. But you had to, you had to know that and you had to know what was happening. So it was, it was totally new. And, and also back then, everyone was just writing the same article over and over again about title tags and meta description. And I was like, I'll, you know, I'm not going to write another article like that just because all the SEOs write these articles like that are about title tags. I don't want to write about title tags. So. Yeah, I feel like you have a, a, a really good eye for things that are happening everywhere but nobody talks about. You just keep on delivering on these things. And I think, yeah, uh, you, you certainly have a, a gift and a skill for that. So I want to I dive into how you got there in, in just a second, but something else that fits perfectly into that series are Fraggles. And you are the queen of Fraggles. So for anybody not knowing what Fraggles are, can you please uh, explain real quick? And also explain how you discovered them. Like what, what was the, the thinking behind it and maybe even the context or the situation when you realized what, the, what was going on? Sure. So Fraggles are a combination of a fragment and a handle 
And what happens when a Fraggle ranks is that Google not only links you to the page, but links you to a section of the page and scrolls right to it. And often they're lifting that piece of the page into the search results. So the piece that they lift, we call the fragment, and the thing that makes it scroll down to the certain piece of the page is called a handle. And what I saw was that you know, we can program handles into pages. They're also called bookmarks, named anchors, stuff like that. But what I was seeing was that this was happening without the jump link. It's another name for it, without the jump link being programmed in. And so it seemed like Google was now able to not only find the most important part of the page that answered the query, uh, but also create or overlay a locator onto it. Uh, so that it knew exactly where it was on the page. And I, I saw that just because I do so much more testing on phones than most people do. And I was seeing a lot of jump links, uh, a lot of jump to um, kind of anchor text in the SERP. And Google would kind of turn the volume up on that and show a lot of those and then turn it down. It was clear they were testing something. Um, and And then I just saw all of a sudden carousels of, of pieces of a page where it would scroll you to this part, or if you clicked on this one in the carousel, it would scroll you to the next one down. Uh, and that was really common, especially for Q&A and FAQ schema, where there were multiple answers on a page that Google was trying to lift, and it would show you the best answer, uh, and then other answers, even though these were all on one page. And to me, I saw that as a fundamental shift because we've always talked about like one URL, one page, one URL, and Google can only rank one URL. And before I was talking about Fraggles, I was talking about how URLs might be going away in the SERP because Google can index so much more than just URLs. So it kind of flowed really nicely from this idea that the URL isn't the only thing that matters or having one page doesn't matter as much because now Google can index um, apps and they can index non-website content like TV shows uh, and product feeds and stuff like that. So it's like those things don't need their own URL and maybe these things on a URL don't need their own URL. Um, so, so that's kind of how it, it came up. So I just had to name it because it seemed, again, so important. But it also tells us things about how Google's crawling and indexing. And if you think about how bullish Google is on PWAs, but so many PWAs, including demos that Google uses at their conferences, so many of them are single page apps. And so then you have an SPA on the web and you have a native app that has no URLs or that you have to kind of superimpose URLs onto with deep links. Uh, and app indexing. And so it's like maybe Google just like can create locators and that's how they're going to start indexing and servicing SPAs. And that's why they're casually, callously like using SPAs as a demo when they're a search engine, right? Like how could they, how could they lean so heavily on a single page app and also be Google? And it's like they must have figured this out. They must have a way around it that, that we just don't know yet. So that was the thought process. Sorry, I'm long-winded, long-winded answer there. I want the long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's super smart. Um, and how do you think SEOs or webmasters in general should change their thinking 
keeping that in mind? Like how did she, how, how should they factor Fraggles into their work? Right now, what we're telling people is that they just need to lean really hard on all the speakable schema. So how to <laughs> FAQ and Q&A schema, because that seems like uh, what Google is already putting into Fraggles, but it also makes sense from a voice perspective. And Fraggles overall makes sense from a voice and a Google Assistant perspective, because the worst experience you can imagine when you're talking to a, a Google Assistant is it reading the entirety of a web page. Right. And so Fraggles allow it to find the right piece of the web page and just read that to you. And the things that people interact with Google Assistant on are always or usually quick answers. They're not looking to research, you know, do a huge research project when they're talking to their assistant. They just want an answer and they don't want a website. It's not the ideal scenario to be like, I have a website. It is HTTPS, you know. They just want the answer. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, and that kind of plays into the next question I wanted to ask, which is, what is Google's endgame with Fraggles, or how can that fit into a greater strategy? And you already kind of explained that it is a reasonable component of voice search, which I completely agree with. Do you think there's more to that strategy, or do you think it helps Google in other ways outside of voice search? I think that there's more to it, but it usually involves voice search. So Google has made a huge media play and many big companies are making huge media plays right now because there's this power vacuum with all of the cable cutters not you know, spending their money on a monthly cable subscription, but now they can uh, spend it on subscriptions with Google or Amazon or piece it out and spend it a bunch of different ways. But since those things, those kind of entertainment options are on demand, um, Google needs to be able to surface those well and surface those with, with information. So two years ago at CES, Google had a really good example of how their connected TVs will allow you to not only search for media that's available in the Google platform with Google Play or YouTube or uh, whatever, any of their subscription services, uh, but within a topic. So, for instance, if you're watching a biography of Alexander Graham Bell uh, and you're searching for the, the documentary, you can also have it bring up the Wikipedia and read you the Wikipedia, or you can ask it questions about, you know, what year did this person die? And it can give you the answer to engage with you in a more kind of multimedia uh, way while your, Google is presumably getting the money or at least the traffic and the data for whatever it is that you're watching. Uh, so we call that being a multifaceted brand which is like, you know, facets on a diamond, like it's much harder to spam stuff like that. In the same way for years, Google was like, mm, links are votes and it's hard to spam links. Well, it turned out it wasn't hard to spam links. Uh, but having entities and concepts that are multifaceted where you have a documentary and you have a Wikipedia page and you have products and you have podcasts, that is hard. To, that all takes work and you can spam it for sure but to do a good job and and to have good engagement signals which i think is what google's trying to to go for now in terms of spam blocking uh it's much harder yeah absolutely it gives me so many so many avenues to venture down 
Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I totally agree. Spam is certainly a huge problem that Google is has been fighting since forever and will continue to fight forever. Um, and then also more of an independency from links. And maybe it's not, you know, maybe the, the end game is not even to get rid of links altogether, but just to add more layers to an understanding of what relevant results are. And it also makes perfect sense to me that they want to get a better understanding of the different blocks of content that they could serve through voice search and whatever comes after or whatever comes with it. So when you create content, should you think in terms of WordPress Gutenberg blocks? Is that kind of, is, is would you say that's an adequate way to look at content in the future where you keep in mind how content could be decomposed and relevant just by, you know, like content pieces could be relevant just by themselves? Yeah, so Gutenberg, I think, I know a lot of people really hate it, but the concept <laughs> is spot on in terms of what Google wants. Because if you think about also, like, what Google has limited resources of, uh, the web is getting bigger and bigger and having to crawl the same pages over and over again with largely the same content is a waste of their time and energy. So Gutenberg allows them to crawl and find the ID of the, the module or the unit uh, and say, okay, I've got that. Don't crawl through that anymore. And then when you piecemeal it out, we, we have an index of this, 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 and this. And even though they occur on 50,000 pages, we don't have to crawl them 50,000 times. We just have to crawl the unique piece, uh, the, the 50,000 pieces that are unique and not waste time, content, energy, or index space on the stuff that is replicated over and over again. I mean, it's such a smart thing. And I don't think it's an accident that a large portion of the web is using WordPress and that Google has changed how they index and that now this, you know, framework for a large part of the internet is also changing how, how they compile pages. I think that WordPress knows um, where I, it just makes sense that Google would get them on board because they power so much of the internet um, to make it so that their, Google's job is easier. Yes. What do you think? Do you see the conspiracy? I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I, I'm there with the conspiracies. I, I think they all have some merit. And, and I think that's a good one. I think you're spot on. And I, if I recall correctly, I think they even have some sort of a partnership where President Google. Um, and yes, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I think to jump in on, the, on, on some of the uh, conspiracies, I, um, I think that would make a ton of sense for Google to get a feed directly from WordPress uh, to, in, to make indexing easier, just like they get from Amazon. And uh, I have no way to prove this. And it's you know, probably it might as well just be my head. So I want to get that caveat out. But why wouldn't they? It would make their life so much easier. Yeah. And it's not evil. I mean, even Google is backed off of their don't be evil mantra. Uh, but I think that it just makes business sense. And, and I don't think they're saying it gives you an unfair advantage any more than doing a correct sitemap gives you an unfair advantage. It just is making it easier and less error prone to crawl. Absolutely, right? Like, why wouldn't they reach out to bigger sites? Uh, maybe, like, they don't even have, wouldn't have to pay them, right? But they would reach out to Facebook, Amazon, WordPress, a couple other companies that have such a major stake in content creation and just ask them for maybe a 
an XML sitemap on steroids and therefore provide them a faster indexing. And as you said, indexing is not ranking, right? It just allows them to have a bigger corpus, but it does not mean that any result is being prioritized. And then when right. we, you know, what we see with, um, oh, I'm blanking on it right now, but I know they have some super, uh, they have an API where you can index certain results super quickly, but... The job, the job yeah. uh, index, but, but what I want to hear your take on this, because I know that you've been in the room where people have said that non-job content gets indexed through the indexing API. And I've heard multiple people who've tested it that say that you can get anything indexed using the indexing API. And we know, for instance, like AMP, Google always starts with one portion of the web as an example and says, oh, it's only for this. Like AMP was only for news and then recipes. And then they added and added and added. Um, and I think that's exactly what's going to happen with the indexing API. And again, that is brilliant from Google's perspective because the web is getting so big and it's really inefficient to crawl. And especially with all the JavaScript out there and all the single page apps, if they just pull that stuff in with an API, they don't have to crawl through the JavaScript uh, and their life is easier. And also... I don't know if you've heard me say this, but I've been saying that's one of the benefits of PWAs um, is that the PWA creates a service worker, requires a service worker. And I've asked Googlers um, at JavaScript conferences, I went up and I was like, hi, I'm sorry, I'm not a developer. Most of this is over my head, but I don't understand why you're pushing so hard on JavaScript if JavaScript will slow your bots down. Do you just... Uh, crawl the service worker and this Googler who wasn't media trained just casually was like no we don't crawl the service worker we crawl the API to the service worker like I was an idiot for asking the question but <laughs> but so so to me you know we can't bank on that it's just one dude at Google but if every PWA creates an API that Google can just ingest the content and the way the service worker works is it does exactly what Gutenberg does. It separates out the pieces and it says this is the most important piece on the page that you need to get. This is the unique content because remember PWAs have an app shell. And the service worker is meant to control what renders and what works even during an offline interaction, well, that would be the most unique text and images of the page. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's funny how Google just becomes more and more of this meta layer of the web where they just do pretty much everything for you, right? They provide a better experience for you. They standardize experiences, especially with something like AMP. And then they also standardize indexing. And why, as you, as you said, why would they not? Why would they not become the, you know, the, the, the Yahoo... Uh, that's on steroids where you come to them if you want to get your stuff indexed. It's just a much more sophisticated way. And I could, like, why wouldn't they even turn this around all together and be like, look, we're not going to crawl the web. They always will probably crawl the web, but they are in a position where they could simply turn around and say, look, if you want your stuff indexed, we need access to your API. And it would make their life so much easier because it's structured, because it's controlled. They would understand when new content is uploaded or when content happen, uh, changes altogether. It would make their life easier, save them tons of dollars. I mean, all that stuff is super expensive at scale. Um, we had uh, a couple of days ago, the um, we had Gary Yish, I'm trying to pronounce his name right, Yish uh, at the SEO meetup here in San Francisco. And um, 
he talked about how just the the localized um, uh, versions of Facebook, uh, how hreflang causes petabytes of data. And again, Facebook is an incredibly large site, but it's not the only one of its scale. And if you have to fund that and crawl it around the globe and index it quickly, if you know whenever somebody posts a status update or a business changes its address, that adds up to a ton of dollars. And Google is under immense pressure from um, shareholders to deliver revenue. And one of the ways to make more money is to decrease cost. So anyway, I think that's, that's how it plays in. But I just find it so intriguing how APIs are becoming that kind of gateway into faster indexing. And I can totally see Google just basically forcing websites and businesses because of their position to bring indexing to basically outsource indexing to sites via APIs. That's, that's my kind of, that's how I look at it. Yeah. Well, and I think that that feeds in really well with this concept that Rand Fishkin has been talking about a lot, uh, which I feel like I've been talking about, but I never gave it a name and he calls it on SERP SEO. And he's talking about all the zero click uh, search results. And and this is something that it, we've been focusing on in mobile for a long time. And I've been talking about what does your search result look like on the phone because the look of it will drive clicks or not. And that includes star ranking schema, whether you have images, uh, stuff like that. So it's not just the text in in the ranking, but what else comes with it. And and a lot of SEOs are upset about the decreasing traffic, and understandably, if that's the, the the measurement of success. But you know, it's an interesting conversation: is how do we talk those SEOs off the ledge? Uh, and, and what is the new advice? And and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because I have thoughts, but but you're really smart too. What do you think? <laughs> Thank you. Um... Thank you. I'm, I'm still trying to live up to your thoughts on this, so I'm trying to say something really smart. Um, but no, what, what I, um, in, in all in all honesty and, and seriousness, um, I wholeheartedly agree. The mobile results are so different, and Google is able to test so much more on mobile. So to come back to that Gary Ish Q and A, he also mentioned that when you would t- search for something. Um, and I think he, he came up with this uh, Deadpool trailer example. So you search for Deadpool trailer and you don't find a result that you're looking for, which would, in the best format, be a video. And then you would click on the video tab that that is a very strong signal to Google that this search or this query probably deserves some sort of video uh, or rich media, um, which makes perfect sense. Um, and I think... That is even easier on mobile. Um, and I have my own theories about that, probably because people you know, use mobile search results differently compared to desktop search results and might even be less inclined to rephrase their query. That's, that's a, that might be a steep theory, but uh, that's what it seems like to me. Anyway, um, I've also noticed that uh, Google has uh, way more uh, SERP features on mobile where they just ask you, is this a result you were looking for? Or did you mean this and that? And uh, so completely changes. Um, and it's such an important f- thing to factor in, which once again, where your tools come in on, and are so useful. Um, and again, yeah, I think it, it, it really depends um, on how you look at the user journey and how that applies to your specific business and vertical. And what I mean by that is that I think we, we also have to forget about or throw this concept away of 
um, copying a desktop existence into, um, sorry, a desktop experience into mobile. And instead, ask ourselves what part of the user journey happens on mobile and what happens on desktop, especially in the B2B world. In B2C, it might be, you know, a bit different, but in B2B, I could see, uh, or I do see a lot of searches um, that are a bit more top of the funnel or early on a user journey happening on mobile uh, with a completely different experiences uh, experience and then venture into desktop. So that was that was kind of a, a bit of a ramble, but I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Well, I, I completely agree with you that people on mobile are less likely to rephrase. And I think it's because, uh, partially because Google is, is doing things differently there. So, so let's look at the, this query example that I like is like, if you ask Google who is the drummer for the band The Cranberries, what it's going to show you is the knowledge graph. And uh, you're going to feel like that was a good result. And Google didn't have to try very hard to get you that, that answer or that feeling of satisfaction. It just shows you the, the knowledge graph. And then you can click around and see who are all the band members and what are the names of the songs and the albums and stuff like that. And that's what you wanted, even though the Cranberries didn't have a drummer. You know, it, Google still feels like it got it right. And Google didn't have to figure out that detail that there's no drummer, and the user is satisfied. And so algorithmically, it's a much faster query to say, can I, can I exact match this with a knowledge graph than to try and find the fraggle or find the, the detailed answer? So Google's just kind of getting it in the ballpark with knowledge graph, but users feel happy. And so they're doing less work for a better result. And that's clever, too. That is, yeah, that's insanely clever. This gets me thinking, really. Um, and how would you... I mean, that obviously also provides a lot of risk for false information, where they just try to algorithmically identify certain things, and then that could go... That could, that could fire backwards really quickly. Yeah, especially. well, and it has with, uh, with featured snippets. Less with yeah. Knowledge Graph, because there's a higher bar to get into the Knowledge Graph. But I wonder... Um, and I've been wondering this on stage for a while. Do we think that featured snippets are part of the knowledge graph, like they're subnodes or they're nodes that are being tested for factual relationships? Like, what do you think on that? Because to me, there's there's some level of confidence to show something in a featured snippet, and, and they seem to know the topic. If, if you say, you know, how to tie a tie, they understand what a tie is. Um, so, so I, I'm interested to hear people's thoughts on that and uh, see where it goes, because I've always counted them as like knowledge graph is the topic layer, but then there's this next layer that comes before blue links and it's featured snippets. Um, and, and blue links are now like the, the lowest quality result you can get, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> from Google's perspective and from the user's perspective. No yes. one wants a blue link. Yeah, that's, absolute, that's absolutely right. Uh, they, don't, they certainly don't provide the same experience. Um, and there is something to it. I absolutely agree with you. So um, what Gary Irsch also said, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to not always repeat what okay, he said. Okay, good. He, he loose-lipped. Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> says, he says, I think, sometimes more than, than he's supposed to. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the, like I have to... I want to be respectful. I think he's. I think what he does, and maybe the um, paradigm sh sh uh, shift a little bit, but he. I feel like he's 
he's trying to reveal more or he does reveal more, which make, makes me anxious in two ways. So one of them is, uh, and <laughs> maybe that's just my like um, SEO suspicious mind at work, but I wonder if he gives certain things away, does that mean that Google is so much further ahead that those things don't matter anymore? And that's my, that's honestly, that's my conspiracy theory here. I think um, that's true. <laughs> and it's a bit scary because some of the things that he gives away, I didn't expect or didn't know, and, and they are very helpful for my work. But if I think that Google is so much further ahead that that doesn't matter, then ugh, that's nasty. Um, anyway. Uh, but also, I think sometimes he he maybe is telling us what he suspects with very educated uh, you know, background knowledge, but but no one, there's not one person at the Googleplex anywhere who knows the algorithm, right? It's yeah. too deep um, and too multifaceted, right? And um, I, I like explaining it, my new way of explaining it with all the, there's algorithms and there's sub-algorithms. And like the algorithms already kind of had industry-specific or intent-specific algorithms, but then there's stuff with that. So uh, I worked with this one woman who described a website. I love her. She 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 was complaining about how hard it was, and she was like, "It is like an octopus with twins." <laughs> and and that's kind of how I think about the the algorithms. Is there's algorithms and there's sub algorithms and there's you know so many different factors uh, that no one could know it all anymore. And, and I think that's one of the big reasons they haven't replaced Matt Cutts per se. Yeah is that um, the algorithm was a bit more simple, uh, at least in the early days of Matt Cutts' reign. And, and I think that if they were to replace Matt Cutts, it would need to be many people with many specialties, and which is kind of what they're doing. They had Maria kind of doing app stuff for a while. If Gary, he doesn't seem to have a specialty, uh, but then they have uh, the JavaScript guy. And, and I think if they're smart, they'll continue to build that out. Uh, because you can't, number one, you can't replace Matt Cutts, but number two, um, it's, there's just too much to know. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 t I totally agree. And he also said that there are mil probably millions of little algorithms at work, uh, and that fits neatly into this understanding that ranking factors are getting more query-specific or maybe category-specific. Uh, so there's just more customization even for the query, which, which makes perfect and total sense. Um, and he also, so yes, and also if you go to Google actually or to the offices, you'll, you'll notice that the, the people who are working on search are not in the Google Plex. They're sitting somewhere completely else. They're completely shielded. Google is basically a company of, it's basically, I mean, it's many companies, but uh, in a certain way, it's also two companies as in that there's people who work very close to the core product, which is search. And they're they're completely shielded from the rest, which yeah is probably common practice. I, I would also suspect that uh, Apple has uh, designers on or R and D people shielded off from everybody else because at such a scale of uh, of a company size, you can just simply not guarantee that something gets out. But yes, I agree that Gary slips sometimes, and and you know as as an SEO, I I celebrate that. I love that. Um, and again, I. Um, I want to, you know, I have a lot of respect uh, and gratefulness for him going out into the lion's den and going to SEOs and kind of trying to help and uh, showing his uh, his opinion and his understanding of things. Um, and, you know, to be fair, he can only know so much. I know he worked on some search algorithms or search features himself in the past. Uh, but yeah, it's not that easy 
type of a deal where, as you mentioned, like a Metcutz goes out and knows all the different things. Um, and there's also an interesting New York Times article, or it could have been The Verge, uh, where they had an interest, uh, interview, I think, with some Googlers, and they mentioned that uh, even Amit Singhal kind of builds search after his intuitive understanding of what people like. And then it completely shifted after him where um, algorithm people or machine learning people like Jeff Dean, um, you know, basically changed everything and now try to solve things at scale, which makes sense from their perspective as well. And to kind of tie the knot on this, uh, one thing that Gary um, kind of reveals is that the algorithm that extracts the entities and word tokens from content to create featured snippets is relatively simple and that there is a click component to that as well. But then he also mentioned that there is something that he cannot talk about that all of a sudden comes into play when they filter, for example, for uh, negative or bad tokens or spammy tokens to uh, avoid, you know, scandals that happened in the past with uh, with um, bad results that are fake or fake uh, facts. Um, and that there is probably a lot more that has also happened in the background. And my theory is, and again, I can only theorize here, that potentially there is a deeper connection between Knowledge Graph and the featured snippet algorithm uh, where they might um, run them through the same uh, filters and neural networks that um, that basically are taking care of the entity understanding and the relationship. So I could see some bridge there. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, totally. I, I think that's right. What We've been playing a lot with the Google Cloud Natural Language API, um, which if you just search for Cloud Natural Language API, you can copy and paste text from your website and put it in, and they'll show you what they understand from the text is an entity and what's not. So, for instance, we've recently been working on a... Uh, a problem where a big brand came to us and said, we obviously need to be ranking for this keyword, but we're just not. And um, we kind of looked and said, yeah, we agree. You, you probably should be there and your metadata looks right. And we looked at who was ranking for the word and popped in some of the text from their website and their other assets. And um, the the things were getting identified as different kinds of entities. So all the ones that were ranking were, you know, this subclass, this entity, but we were this subclass, something else entity. And so our idea now is we need Google to really understand that we're the same as those guys uh, and they've clearly misunderstood. Hmm. Now, how did it go about changing the entity understanding? That's another thing, but I think we'll be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I've noticed some of the same things where you have very subtle differences in um, word tokens on the page and entities. And I, I love the NLP API. Um, I'll, I'll also add that to the show notes in case people can't find it. But yes, I, I strongly recommend everybody to play around with that and see if there are certain differences um, in uh, Google's understanding of your content. And I also think that Google pu punishes, not punishes, probably the wrong word, but Google has become way more aggressive of how they rank certain sites that do not fulfill that entity profile that they're looking for in a really aggressive way. And I think that some of the recent core algorithm updates have done exactly that. So I've seen sites that, that have traffic and ranking drops similar to Panda, uh, or Penguin in the past, where you have like a like a fifty percent traffic drop almost overnight, and 
as much as technical issues can certainly be at play here, I'm not I'm not ruling that out. I think there is a chance that this comes back to energy understanding, and Google is at a point where they are so good at it that they can just like recklessly reshuffle the search results in some regards. Yeah, recklessly reshuffle and then and revert if if the yeah. click data shows that it that it was a bad idea. Yeah. That it didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, you see that a lot, these kind of uh, dips and then come comebacks with different algorithm updates, which is so crazy because it can, it's kind of everything goes back to what it was in the past, right? Like, I remember when you had to wait for the Panda uh, algorithm to update or Penguin uh, even to kind of have a comeback. So we see that again. You had Yahoo where you had to add your site to a directory and we almost kind of see see that again happening. So yeah. it is it is funny how, how it goes back to that. Well, um, and... and um... You know they they are so uh, strong about how great the the new indexing is and that deferred JavaScript rendering is faster now and it's probably not a week it's much sooner um, and, and I think you know number one to me that's easily explained by machine learning when they were using you know when they expected deferred JavaScript rendering to take up to a week it was because their their machine learning hadn't been exposed to as many JavaScript libraries, and now there are just only so many JavaScript libraries that it has to learn, then once it learns it, it could just pick out the keywords and what it needs and not have to crawl the actual JavaScript. And there just aren't that many, right? There are a lot, but not that many. And so once Google learns the basics of the, the JavaScript libraries, they don't have to spend so much time, and they could just go, boop, 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 we got this, and, and not really try so hard on the JavaScript. Uh, and so that makes sense. But then we got a notification yesterday on Twitter or, you know, Google announced on Twitter that they were having indexing problems for new content and they knew about it. And so to me, it's like, wow, like they need to like turn that machine on and off or something like, <laughs> like how, how is it that this keeps happening? But then what does this tell us about the way that the new crawling and indexing works, right? That they can have massive outages basically uh that it takes a while to notice and, and what does that look like on the other side of it like what are the the googlers that are like running around with their hair on fire trying to fix it like what are they fixing and and how did they miss it you know so that's all very interesting because it's something that didn't happen before mobile first indexing they didn't say like oh we're sorry we have like a problem indexing new content. We just figured it out. Like the bots would just roam randomly. But now Google seems to be efficient enough that they know when something's broken and yes. when it's it's their fault and not ours. Whereas I think before they just always, the bots would crawl randomly and assume that it was our fault. <laughs> the websites were bad. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, bad SEOs scammed something and broke it. Uh, so <laughs> what is the theory there, uh, real quick? What do you think, Why? like how it, how it works in the back end? I don't know. I honestly, I'm, I brought it up because it's something I've been thinking about that I really can't come up with an answer to. I'm sure there are smarter SEOs out there who have uh, interesting theories. What do you think? I think you're one of the smartest SEOs. <laughs> if you don't know, then I'm certainly not going to know. Um, I, I honestly don't know. But uh, I think what is interesting is um, that there are big parts of the web that are still not indexed due to JavaScript. And you were in the room as well when Bartosz present, presented those stats. Um, Bartosz Karolovich, and I'll also link to that in the show notes, where he showed that even of large sites, certain piece, certain parts are not indexed. If I recall correctly, he pointed out um, 
comments. Oh, there's Barkley uh, giving yeah. us the. <laughs> he's saying, "Okay, that's enough. <laughs> Come to an end." So we'll we'll be there, Barkley. Just give me just give me one second to finish that thought. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, he mentioned medium comments that are not indexed, um, and then other other sites as well. So uh, it seems to be a bigger struggle. And I still don't believe Google when they say that they perfectly figured out JavaScript because they have not. Um, and no, they haven't. Yeah. They definitely haven't. And they're giving a lot of false positives. I think yeah. they think that they're better than they are. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, just the other day, I was looking at a page where the whole homepage was covered by an interstitial, which used to cause problems and probably still is at least not a good ranking signal. Uh, but it was like, yeah, mobile friendly. This is mobile friendly. And like for years, they said that that's a big signal of not mobile friendly. Uh, so at least from on their own evaluation, they're broken. <laughs> yes, they absolutely are. And I totally agree. You see these false, uh, false positives where there are certain sites out there and I keep bashing them and I, and I will un until I die because it's, it's a horrendous experience. Uh, but there's certain sites out there who like plaster ads everywhere and, 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 um, um, violate all the mobile friendliness guidelines. And then you have other sites where Google reports mobile friendly problems in search console and then tells you your text is too close together. Um, and I almost feel like that's a very, standardized notification that they sent to webmasters, whereas they should be able to much better understand how qualitative the mobile experience is. But anyway. Well, and one more thing. I've seen a new kind of spam that's like mobile-first indexing spam. And what it is, since JavaScript, since the JavaScript caller can crawl hidden content, uh, what they're doing is they're creating lists of like the top 10 whatevers. And it's this huge like ads everywhere. And the top 10 list is a little slideshow in the middle that you have to click through. Like number one is this, number two is that. And every time you click through, you get new ads. <laughs> yeah. It's really bad. Search for top 10 whatever, you'll find it, I bet. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for JavaScript spam, actually. You can really... You can do some really bad stuff. And it's, it's another one where I think that Google just says, oh, yeah, we can totally see that and don't do it. But deep down, they're very scared because they can't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, sorry, please go ahead. It's been good talking to you. I know we're wrapping up. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, I really don't want to wrap up, but I feel like Barclay is going to, is going to be really mad at me and I kind of don't want to, uh, you know, uh, burn that relationship. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I could talk to you for hours and you're... And, insane gem to the seo community and we're lucky to have you so thank you so much for for, let, for letting me plug into your brain api um and extract some of those insane thoughts um it's been a pleasure talking to you cindy thank you and let me do a, a promo code for your listeners if they want to try the tool do we want to make it kevin all caps please love it all right we'll and do by that. the way uh, where can people find you before i forget plug everything else uh, the Twitter, or well, I'm on Twitter, Suzix, S-U-Z-Z-I-C-K-S, and the site is mobilemoxie.com, so M-O-B-I-L-E-M-O-X-I-E.com, and uh, we're also integrating the tools through APIs with all of the other SEO tools. Um, that's really my goal. I'd rather integrate with the existing tools, so if you have a tool set that you want mobile search or mobile emulation, uh, email me, cindy at mobilemoxie. Oh, love it. Love it. I'll add the, uh, the promo code uh, and links to the show notes. 
Um, and I'll connect you with a couple of people uh, from different tool vendors because everybody needs those tools in their other SEO tools. So thank you so much, Cindy. This was awesome. Have a great weekend and a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.